Global Capital Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair and I'm the editor of Global Capital. And I'm John Hay, the Corporate Finance and Sustainability Editor. Each week, we'll take you through some of the most interesting stories in the capital markets, all of which can be found at globalcapital.com. Now, it seems that there are only two topics in the capital markets this week, central bank policy and COP26. And today, we're going to be talking about the latter. We'll be joined by our managing editor, Toby Fields, who has been editing special coverage from the conference by us and our sister titles, such as Euromoney Magazine and IJ Global. John, you've covered a number of announcements from COP this week not to mention the months running up to COP and the years of green finance coverage beforehand. Um, so if you had to pick one thing from this week's COP activity that was going to be the most consequential for the financial markets, or perhaps just a corner of the markets, what would it be? Well, I think the thing that would have to be considered the most important is actually something that hasn't happened. And that's that we haven't had the kind of breakthrough that environmentalists would really want. We haven't had a global deal of the kind we had in Paris in 2015 when the Paris Agreement was signed, where countries really moved towards each other in their attitudes to dealing with climate change. And what I mean is we need to increase the ambition and the pace of reducing carbon emissions. And that is absolutely vital for avoiding catastrophic climate change. And it does require countries to make sacrifices and to to agree to do it because the others are doing it. And that sort of consensus just hasn't appeared yet. It could it could come in the second week, but um, so far it, it's, it's not happened. Yeah, I think I remarked to a, a contact of mine um, earlier this week that it's, uh, it was at risk of uh, turning into sort of McDavos or Davos on the Clyde rather <laughs> than being a, a meaningful cop. But um, let's let's find out uh, if if our, our bodies, on, if our feet on the ground agree with that. Um, this week, we spoke to Toby Files, our managing editor, as I said, and from the halls of COP26 in Glasgow itself, Lewis McClellan, our sovereign, supranationals and agencies editor, to find out what will change in the capital markets as a result of COP and whether any of that will have any impact on the environment. Toby, we'll start with the view from the mountaintop first, or Arthur's seat if you work for CNN. You've been putting together coverage from across Global Capital and its sister publications this week about the issues being discussed at COP. Can you tell us a bit about that project and also whether you've gained the sense this week that this has been a meaningful conference that will have a genuine impact on capital markets and the green transition? Yeah, thanks, Ralph. So yeah, here at Euromoney Institutional Investor, we want to be at the forefront of ESG finance coverage and want to solidify our credibility in it. So for the first time, we're coming together as a group, uh, uniting our forces to produce uh, what I think is highly relevant news analysis and commentary in the build up to and of course, during the COP26 conference, um, showcasing our editorial in the field of climate finance. Uh, We're doing this through the creation of a new pop up uh, website that we are populating with stories related to climate written by uh, many of the Euromoney titles. Uh, And you can find this all on euromoney.com forward slash COP26. Uh, The fact is that 
the subject matter is super relevant to our titles uh, involved in this project. In fact, the idea has come about really because climate change and specifically the financial community's response to it in terms of adaptation and resilience is a unique unifying factor for all our brands, namely Global Capital, Your Money Magazine, International Tax Review, International Financial Law Review, IJ Global, Insurance Insider and Air Finance Journal. Um, yeah, it's, it's been really exciting and, and rewarding and great to be working with colleagues and showcasing our fantastic content and coverage around what is, I think, the biggest challenge our world faces today. So I'd urge all of our listeners to go and have a look at this pop-up site. And and so what are the what are the conference itself? I mean, you've seen a lot of the coverage. Um, do you get a sense that this has been a meaningful COP, or do you sort of share John's concerns that there hasn't been a big global agreement like we had in Paris? Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with John. Um, the big, big, big kind of picture stuff has, I think, disappointed. However, I think there have been some really important um, moves. You know, I think the um, the International Sustainability Standards Board creating a new board, the ISSB, to establish a shared set of sustainable disclosures across, I think, it's six continents is, is actually a really important development, very positive development. You know, so too, uh, and I think we'll talk about it in a minute, but so too, uh, you know, is the kind of, um, is the... Uh, uh, the creation of a more robust GFANS, you know, the Glasgow Finance Alliance for Net Zero, which uh, which has taken on a more robust form this week. Um, um, basically, you know, it's now going to be reporting to the G20 and attempting to steer the financial sector on its decarbonisation journey. So I think there have been really great, um, really some really great progress, um, perhaps, um, interestingly enough, at, at the sort of the finance level, but maybe not at the political level. Yes, I agree, Toby. I think I think the most important thing of all is what I said at the beginning, the gap, the lack of a sort of major political agreement. But at a lower level, there have been lots of announcements and lots of measures announced or, or brought forward that, that, that will make a difference. Um, I think the forests agreement that we saw at the beginning of the week is important. Um, you've got 105 countries committing to end deforestation by 2030, uh, and they hold 85% of the world's forests. Um, now, 2030 is quite a long time. In fact, it's much too slow to end deforestation, which really needs to end much more, much sooner than that, especially in very vulnerable areas like the Amazon. But it is a step forward because the rich countries are once again uh, offering a bit of money, not not an enormous amount, but twelve billion dollars um, over the period to ease the way for the the developing countries where most of the forests are to protect them. I think, as we mentioned earlier, Lewis, uh, we have Lewis McClellan uh, with us today, but he's actually joining us from from Glasgow, from actually in the middle of the COP conference itself, which is fantastic. He he's actually made it to Glasgow, unlike. Uh, other um, news people, such as Wolf Blitzer, who um, was standing outside uh, in Edinburgh, claiming that he was in fact in Glasgow, which I thought was quite amusing. Um, but Lewis, it's great to have you with us, and uh, it's great that you're in Glasgow. Um, I, I, I'd be interested to know, uh, you know, what's it been like this week? Um, I think many of us in the in, in, many of us in the financial world 
haven't been able to make it, but we've been looking on um, as very, very interested parties. Uh, many, many of us are, I guess, veterans of uh, the the IMF World Bank annual meetings, and perhaps um, I've certainly um, been thinking whether there are any similarities between that and, and COP. Uh, but what's it been like for you? Yeah, well, I did. I did have one advantage over Wolf Blitzer, which is that I am I'm a Glasgow native, so it's easier to find for me. Um, I yeah, it's been quite an amazing week. It's really. Um, the, I mean, the scale of the conference is 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 huge. Uh, I think the you know the IMF meetings in in DC and elsewhere, uh, they they tend to feel a little more uh, separate because uh, or separated. The the idea you know they they have a whole um, a whole area of DC uh, where this conference where the IMF conferences take place. You know people. Events happen all over the city. Uh, you know, there's the IIF uh, meetings as well, uh, and various different buildings. This is all very contained within the one campus, uh, and part of that is um, is because of the context of the pandemic. You know, they don't want to host any events where uh, people have not gone through a checkpoint where they've had to verify that they've done a lateral flow test that day. So it's quite rigorous. Um, but uh, you know, what that creates is you've got this uh, this incredible. Uh, feeling of almost a bubble where where everything is is very intense and very uh, uh, very compact. Um, so that's yeah, it, it feels quite different from uh, from the IMF in that sense. One of the consequences of that is that everyone is trying to get in through the same gates at the same time every morning, and that means you stand outside for an hour and a half, uh, just uh, just in the in the cold November Glaswegian wind, uh, waiting to get in. But uh, it has all been worth it, you know. I think. Um, I think I share what John John's uh, feeling of, of uh, maybe disappointment at, at the lack of uh, serious political uh, contributions um, that have been made so far. But uh, the atmosphere is great, and and I think it's worth remembering we're only a little under halfway through. Um, there's there's a lot more time. That I was at a, a press conference with the the COP twenty six president uh, Alex Sharma, um, and he. He said that they were making big progress. I mean, perhaps that's uh, what he would say, but uh, there was certainly an optimistic air that we could still uh, we could still be waiting for for the really big sort of signature announcements to come. Um, John, uh, let's talk about some of the announcements so far. Yeah. Um, Toby mentioned GFANS, which is um, the mobilization of uh, 130 trillion dollars um, by Mark Carney. Uh, to save the planet. Um, how has he managed to get that sort of cash together? Did the Bank of England give him his money printer as a leaving present? <laughs> well, yeah, it's it, the 130 trillion. It is not is not insignificant. Okay, it's it's. I'm not going to say it's not a real figure. What they've done is during the year or so before COP is go out and try to get together groups in each of the major financial sectors, banks, insurance companies, asset managers, asset owners, and so on, and get them to form their own alliances for those subsectors to go to net zero. And the the 130 trillion is the sum of all the assets of those those players. So 57 trillion comes from the asset management industry, um, where you now have the really big firms like BlackRock are, are in the tent. Um, and a lot more comes from banks and so on. So, um, but of course, it doesn't mean all, it certainly doesn't mean that money is available to spend on climate action, far from it. 
and it doesn't mean the that all of those assets are being managed in a climate friendly way either and you know there was significant criticism about that from ngos this week what what sort of things were they criticizing uh and what sort of rules do we have or what sort of commitments are those in charge of that money making to make sure that that money is deployed properly can i yeah. jump in there quickly yeah. so yeah i just want to yeah I, so i i kind of share john's um uh, you know, it's a huge headline figure, uh, but um, what they're actually committing to is to uh, bring their portfolio to net zero alignment by 2050. That's a very long time away. And I don't think uh, uh, it's, it's important not to conflate that with uh, making their portfolios immediately consistent with a world in which we limit global warming to 1.5 degrees or even 2 degrees. Yeah, that's right. For each of these net zero alliances, the net zero banking alliance, net zero asset managers initiative and so on, there's a there's a membership statement that the, that the members have to sign up to. And and the t it's all in the technical detail of how that's worded. Of course, it, it's a very, very difficult thing for a large financial institution to say that it's um, aligned with net zero because the economy isn't. And a bank or an insurance company or a, an asset manager has to lend by and large to the economy as a whole. And if the economy isn't aligned, they, they can't be. But what they can do is introduce policies that will drive them towards that goal as fast as possible. And, and the arguments are all about whether they're doing that with enough energy. I could maybe just contrast that with uh, the approach of uh, some public sector institutions. So um, the, the European Investment Bank uh, has for a while said that they will only invest in, in projects that are consistent uh, with the Paris goals, i.e. Uh, not, nothing that's inconsistent with reaching a net zero economy by, by 2050. Um, but they, they're now also saying that uh, they, they're not just going to be looking at the projects, they'll actually look at the activities of the companies they're lending to. So uh, if, you know, you were going to borrow money from, from the EIB, uh, they will no longer lend it to you unless you, uh, even if you're doing something environmentally friendly with that money, unless you have a plan to bring your whole corporate strategy uh, into, uh, you know, have a plan to bring that to, to net zero alignment by 2050. Yeah, that's a really important step, I think, Lewis. And, and you know, isn't it the case that the other uh, multilateral development banks are quite a, a way behind the EIB? Um, yeah, that's right. They're the only MDB that's that's made this kind of commitment. But um, I think it's worth remembering that they do have uh, an advantage there. Um, when they're lending in Europe, as you made the point, you know, you've got to lend to the economy. And uh, a lot of their their lending clients are already aligned with the Paris Alliance, with uh, the Paris goals, and uh, it's a relatively small proportion of their clients that they have to do the work to help them develop a plan to bring them into that alignment. Oh, and speaking of those plans, there was a there was another announcement this week too. Um, John, you covered this one, which was uh, mandatory transition reporting in the UK. Um, what will that do to to help save the environment? Yeah, I think this is really a good one. Um, actually, and and it's really surprising that it's taken this long for uh, governments to put this on the agenda of sustainable finance. We've had the EU legislating about sustainable finance since 2018, with a lot of measures such as the famous taxonomy that seem to create 
a lot of hot air and you know not really be extremely helpful whereas this this measure i think it really has potential it spain actually did it first in may with their climate law but what it what it will mean is every company of a certain size and every financial institution has to publish a, a plan for how it prepares to transition to the net zero future they don't actually have to say we're going to get to net zero but they have to be realistic that that's the way the economy is going and how are they going to manage as a business and i think it's you know very creative and important uh, thing that will really clarify the dialogue between investors and companies about this issue i guess it sounds to me like something that will be of great use but to companies that are probably already thinking of it and i'm thinking here of like the uh, the big oil companies and so on but uh possibly a, a bureaucratic burden for those that aren't so involved or is, is that is that a bit unfair i don't think it's really a bureaucratic burden because if you think about it what could be more important this is going to happen the economy is going to change there is going to be climate change and if companies can't find the time to think about it and how to plan for it what are they doing so we talked earlier about the lack of a big political breakthrough uh, so far um and i but i don't think that's really um for the lack of one to trying we've had india's prime minister narendra modi and uruguay's finance minister as you said arbaleche um actually ramp up the emerging market demands from the developed world um you know modi asked for has asked for 1 trillion a year so yeah I mean, you know a trillion dollars is quite a a ramp up from the 100 billion a year that was previously asked for um actually first of all in 2009 and and developed governments have failed to hit that 100 billion which which makes me question uh just how realistic the 1 trillion dollar ask is yeah unfortunately it isn't at all likely uh, based on uh, what we can see at the moment, that the rich countries are going to provide anything like that. As you say, they promised in 2009 in Copenhagen, when Obama was president, to be channeling, as they put it, $100 billion a year of climate finance from rich countries to poor ones by 2020. It's 2021. They haven't hit it yet. The estimate is they might get there in 2023. But that's really just insignificant compared with the vast investment needs that report after report keeps saying will will be needed to actually make a, a clean economy possible. I think um, it may be worth adding here. Uh, so it's not so much a lack of money. Uh, it's the money exists in the private sector uh, and, and a lot of work is being done on creating uh, a framework uh, to allow uh, to allow this money to be lent from from the private sector to uh, to the developing world to, to allow this change to happen. But uh, I think it's worth highlighting one of the difficulties here, and that is that um, the private sector will only lend to investable assets, right? Uh, something that will you know, conceivably generate a return. Um, we've done a reasonably good job in creating a framework for investable assets in, miti in mitigating climate change and in greening the economy. But the effects of climate change are already here in, in some places in the world. Uh, and there's a, a huge need for adaptation, uh, investment in adaptation to the consequences of climate change. Uh, and 
uh, it's a very small proportion of the money that's being spent um, on climate change, uh, which is already not enough, but only a very small amount of that is being spent on adaptation. And uh, speaking to uh, speaking to uh, MDBs operating in the developed world, um, that's uh, that's a big concern for for people on the ground there. Well, I think this this also touches on a problem we spoke about earlier because we were talking about um, regulations and uh, transition plans and and so on, and we've mentioned the taxonomy and standards of what counts as green financing and what doesn't. And one of uh, one of the contentions is that a lot of the way the rules are drawn up suits very well green investment in the West, but not in the developing world. And um, I wonder if that's as much of a barrier to getting funding into EM uh, and emerging markets in the developing world as the sort of political will. That's an interesting argument. It's certainly true that there's a lot of talk going on about standards internationally and you know, should they be aligned? Should they be different? Do they need to be sensitive to local conditions? I don't actually think this is the barrier at the moment. I think, um, you know, it, there is, as Lewis said, a lot of money in in that's investable um, and that needs to find a return. The difficulty is finding spade-ready projects that have a proper regulatory framework to back them up where investors can put money in and make it a reasonable return with a reasonable level of risk um and and that that you know channeling that the money from where it is to where it's needed it has been a problem for decades um it, we haven't really made enormous progress on it in in the last 10 years um but there, there are some encouraging signs i think uh spe in specific places and you know it was notable this week as part of the forest deal there's a there's a specific agreement on the congo basin in africa um which is the second largest uh, forest after the amazon and is also at risk not quite as much in peril as the amazon yet but um uh, donor countries and uh, some other organizations are putting up money to finance projects to protect the forest um over over a 10 year period in a way that's allied with reforms in in countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo. And so initiatives like that, that are well governed and carefully worked out are very promising. John, do you think, though, that uh, there is a bias against um, emerging markets in terms of climate capital? No, I, I don't think there's a bias. I don't I don't think it's a problem at all that the, the, the money uh, or at least not a not a significant problem that there's all this green money, but it won't invest in emerging markets because the things there aren't quite green enough. That's clearly a theoretical problem and one that people worry about when they design policies. But I don't think that's really the thing that's holding back investment. The problem is just getting enough investable projects to in the emerging markets that that investors can put money in with with a level of risk that they will accept and it's it, you know it needs forms of blended finance um where you know public actors probably take some of the risk and um the private sector provide the bulk of the capital 
well, the mechanism exists for that, doesn't it, through uh, the Washington supranational institutions like the World Bank, which guarantees such projects. And yeah, you know, I guess I guess that's that's common amongst multilateral development banks all the world over. That's right. They are a form of of this exactly, a form of blended finance. But they're you know they're not equal to the scale uh, of the need. And the I mean, one of the, what this shows also though is. That the, it's not that the multilateral development banks are having to turn down projects. They don't have uh, 10 times as many deals they could do uh, if they had the capital. They could do more probably, but it's about getting the projects in those countries ready. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the multilateral development banks uh, can do it via concessional lending. They lend to, to the recipients below the market rate. The uh, There is a problem that an investable project in uh, sub-Saharan Africa has to generate a higher rate of return uh, to be investable than one in, you know, Denmark or Northern Europe. Um, that, and and generally over a shorter time, people are, are less willing to lend to uh, the developing world uh, for, you know, at, at low yields and for long yeah. times. So that means that if you're, trying to create a project in the developing world, it has to immediately have a higher rate of return than, a, than one in the developed world. And that's that that's the barrier, I think. Uh, well, or one of the many barriers, I think, to getting private capital into this. But I think, as John said, well, this this contributes to the problem that John is talking about, of simply the lack of, uh, of projects. So I still think the point about bias is, is an important one. And, and we, we continue to see uh, this, I think, somewhat understandable argument put put out by emerging markets is that you know they 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 look at the developed world and they say you've polluted for years, you've pillaged our countries for centuries, and uh, I have lots of money. Uh, you know, and we emerging markets are, are, are relatively insignificant contributors to climate change. Yeah, I think I fully agree with that point. I think the the West bear the responsibility for climate change. They are appallingly miserly in being willing to help countries that are suffering the effects of climate change. Um, and it's completely self-defeating because they could, you know, Africa is at a stage of development where it, it needs to be electrified. This could be done with renewable energy cheaply, quickly, and, it, it, and, and avoid the stage where a load of gas power plants and coal plants get built that are just going to have to be taken away again. Um, but I don't, I don't think it's, it's about bias on green standards. Um, one, thing, one thing I think worth mentioning in the emerging market context is a point that Ollie West brought out in his article, is that in, the, the investors, the, the commercial investors in emerging market bonds are taking the side of the emerging markets very much and saying, um, you know, the West needs to do more to help them. Uh, so it's not just sort of NGOs and and uh, sort of pious people like that. Uh, so, yeah, Lewis and I certainly are, have been to many IMFs, uh, annual IMF World Bank meetings, and uh, we are, by the end of Saturday or Sunday, very grateful that it's only a week long. Um Whereas COP26 is, in fact, two weeks long and we are only now halfway through. So, yeah, Lewis, uh, what can we expect from the second half of this of this conference? 
Yeah, two weeks uh, certainly feels like a long time. Uh, I don't know if I would survive uh, covering the the IMF meetings for for a full two weeks. Um, it's yeah, it's it's an exhausting schedule, and I think that that really uh, speaks to the the scale of the problem that uh, that we're tackling. There's so many areas uh, that need so much attention, and there's so many people here who are uh, determined to 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 do what they can. Um, the, the NDCs, uh, the reason COP26 is, is such a big deal is that, you know, we're, we're at the uh, the point where the, the nationally determined contributions are, uh, are are set once more, which is every five years. Uh, and, you know, that's that's going to be the, the biggest outcome of this conference, I think. Uh, but, you know, aside from that, um, one of the big themes that uh, the presidency has returned to over and over again is, is mobilizing uh, private sector capital. Uh, everyone who gets on a stage at all this week says that uh, the public sector can't do this alone, the private sector can't do this alone. Um, so that there'll hopefully be, be more announcements about uh, how private sector is going to be channeled to where it's needed. Private sector finance is going to be channeled to where it's needed with the assistance of the public sector. Uh, the oceans uh, protecting those. Um, from the impact of climate change. Uh, and uh, I made the point already, adaptation is something that uh, uh, sometimes falls falls by the wayside uh, when the discussion is about reducing emissions and, and pursuing the net zero goal because it's, it's, it's dealing with the consequences rather than actually pursuing that goal directly. Uh, but it's still very important. Um, so hopefully we'll get uh, we'll get meaningful progress on, on all of these. Uh, I think... Um, to sum to sum up how it feels so far, you know, there's been a lot of positive developments, but I don't think uh, I don't think anyone would pretend that what we've heard so far uh, feels like enough. Feels like uh, the sort of progress that is needed to actually uh, keep keep us to a one point five or or even two degree uh, increase, uh, and and nor to mitigate the consequences of what a two degree increase actually means for the world. So a lot already for uh, capital markets to digest from the COP26 conference and a whole week, a whole weeks of announcements still to come. Uh, thank you to John, Toby and Lewis for joining me and to Gerald Hayes, our producer, for editing the podcast and putting it all together. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe. It's free. There's a new episode out every Friday and that's published at all the major platforms. Uh, if you search for Global Capital on any of them, you'll find us there. Uh, you can, of course, find it on the Global Capital website. Um, and again, if you want to read any of that uh, coverage from around uh, Euromoney Institutional Investor and its various titles uh, on COP26, it's all free to read. Uh, just go to euromoney.com forward slash COP26. Um, now, meanwhile, don't forget to get in touch with us either if you want to discuss anything on the podcast or suggest future topics or get involved. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Just email podcast at globalcapital.com. We'll be back with more stories in the capital markets next week. So thank you very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>